Hey listeners, um, this is another episode of the North Georgia Psych Podcast. Um, today we're going to be talking to Erin Colbert-White about um, animal behavioral research. Uh, my name is Melissa, and I guess we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, just a little bit about Erin. Um, she earned her bachelor's degree in psychology from Denison University in Ohio, and also earned her master's in psychology from UGA. Uh, she's currently a student of the Behavioral and Brain Sciences doctoral program at UGA, and she's um, actually about to graduate. Right, Erin? Yes, I am. I actually just defended my dissertation last Wednesday, so all done. That's great. Um, okay, uh, what made you choose UGA as your graduate school? That's a really good question. The first thing that I was looking at when I was considering graduate schools was the type of species that I would have the opportunity to work with. Mm -hmm. um, there's not a lot of animal cognition labs out there to begin with, right. and when I was first starting, really my only options were going to be non-human primates, dolphins, um, there were a couple dog cognition labs, so canine cognition labs opening up, but they weren't really taking off yet, so I really had to make a decision about whether I wanted to go the route of um, not of aquatic mammals or if I wanted to go the route of non-human primates. And so I chose UGA specifically because I had an interest in animal communication and I knew that I would be able to do some work, I, I thought, with the non-human primates here at UGA, that we have capuchin monkeys, okay. um, but that ended up actually totally derailing and I went a completely opposite direction with the parrots. So it really came down to what labs there were that actually had animal cognition involved. Okay, um, what got you interested in the field of animal research? Well, I knew I wanted to work with animals. I knew I did not want to be a vet, and I've known that since I was a kid. Uh, I took a AP psychology class when I was in high school, and I really enjoyed learning about how the mind works and the neuroanatomy, and so I knew I wanted to probably be a psychology major in college, and I really also enjoyed this really small section on non-human animal language. So talking about Kanzi the bonobo and Ake the dolphin, learning about syntax, and how non-human animals could demonstrate a lot of the same principles of language or features of language that we kind of tend to overlook because we want to keep ourselves up on this pedestal. So I thought that one little section that one day was just fascinating and I saw that there was an opportunity to pursue combining psychology with my love for animals without having to do any kind of invasive work. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, can you explain um, what you're currently researching with parrots? Sure. So if you look at any of that non-human animal language kind of research, what you'll notice is that they're all really focusing on these structural features of language. Mm -hmm. So training syntax and training uh, label learning and object class learning. So there's really cool stuff Irene Pepperberg does with parrots, teaching them an object can be made of plastic, it can be red, it can be larger than, it can be smaller than, depending upon the, qu the question that's asked. Um, or what sort of object it's being compared to. So all of these are, are really cool studies, but they're focusing on this kind of structural component of language and right. training, this idea of syntax or semantics. 
And so the work that I do actually looks at language from a different perspective. So features that we kind of take for granted, like body language or um, interruption, what does it mean when we interrupt, volume modulation, all these features that we have to learn how to, to use through trial and error, I kind of took this, this operant idea of, well, if it takes human children however many years to learn how to use the word please and to manipulate using the word please, maybe it's possible that a species that's taught to use either speech or some other artificial communication system can also spontaneously learn to use some of these functional features as they're communicating spontaneously. So not looking at, for example, um, asking these questions of these animals like label this or how many sides does this object have, but rather looking at how does that animal spontaneously use the communication system that we've trained in order to make its own goals happen. Okay. So um, is there a reason that you guys picked um, parrots over any other, like, uh, vocal bird? Well, parrots, um, yeah, I like parrots specifically because, A, we know that they are highly intelligent from a lot of work that's out there, predominantly Irene Pepperberg's work, right. but also because there was one available to work with. There is a woman here that was a comparative literature professor, she just recently retired, who had a parrot and approached my research advisor before I actually arrived at UGA and said that she had a parrot and she was hoping somebody in her lab would study it. And so when I arrived, I like I said, I came to work with the capuchin monkeys mm -hmm. and serendipitously it ended up that I was asked if I wanted to pursue this particular project. So parrots are highly intelligent. They are really the only birds that can mimic speech and use it. So there's a lot of birds that can mimic speech, right. um, but parrots are the only ones so far that we know of that really can mimic it and use it. Crows, ravens, some other corvids will be able to do a couple of words here and there, but parrots are really kind of the quintessential speaker and user of speech. So that's, it was like the serendipitous meeting of, I had a bird and I had a smart bird <laughs> and together, and that was my research. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so how do you think your research uh, relates to humans? I saw that you were going to ask me that question, and it's funny, <laughs> whenever I get asked that, um, it's, there's always the, humans always benefit from learning more about the world uh -huh. kind of an answer to it. So basic research versus more applied research that's going to have some sort of a direct application value to humans. But basic research for the sake of learning about the species, maybe for conservation purposes or for animal welfare reasons. There's a lot of people that own parrots that have no idea what they're capable of. Yeah. Oftentimes, too, because the birds can get willed to a family member because they live for 60, 70 years, um, and then maybe the new owner has no idea what that bird is capable of. So kind of bringing to light this idea of these birds are highly intelligent, here's all these things that they can do, and here are these things that they can do that are very similar to language, which is what we think makes us very unique um, in the animal kingdom. So that's definitely kind of an applied... Um, Kind of, I guess it's more of a, an animal application that it's directly serving humans. Right. But also just the idea of learning more about the origins of human language. 
So we have theories about whether it was gestural, whether it was vocal, and the more we learn and uncover about what other uh, animal species can do, the more we can kind of pick apart and say, well, okay, this other species that separated from us 200 million years ago still shows some features, or, well, you don't need to have a larynx, you can use a syrinx, which is what parrots use mm -hmm. in order to vocalize. So just kind of picking apart at what makes speech and language really unique to humans is something else that I focus on with my work. Okay, um, what's your favorite part of animal research or just cognitive research in general? Well, working with animals is fantastic for me, partly because I'm completely allergic to everything. <laughs> So I can't actually own pets, okay. which is really sad for me because I would love to be able to have pets, but this gives me the opportunity to either bring animals into the lab or I go to their homes and I can do my work and I can visit with them and spend time with them, but then I get to leave at the end of the day. So it's been a great opportunity for me to be able to get my hands you know, into different types of species and getting to learn more about different types of species that I could never actually own. Um, I mean, obviously, monkeys and dolphins are a little different, but it's given me the opportunity to get to know a lot more species without having to sneeze all the time by having pets. So I've really enjoyed <laughs> part of what I do. And I also just kind of enjoy, you know, taking these theories that we have about what makes humans unique and sort of trying to come up with ways to either debunk them or to challenge those ideas for the simple, you know, kind of, strange pleasure I get in knocking people down a peg just a little <laughs> um, and showing that we're not so unique and that these barriers that we've put up are slowly coming down the more we sit down and actually listen to what's going on and what these animals have to say. Right. Um, I think like animals are a lot smarter than people actually think they are so I think it's great that you can actually research this kind of stuff. Well thanks. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoy it and, and it is something that I hope other students will be interested in because like I said I happened to hear that one day learning about non-human animals to study psychology and still study human animals and to kind of marry the two it's really awesome field research. Right. Um, so you've worked with a lot of different animals but uh, which one so far has been your favorite? <laughs> um, I can tell you my least favorite animal <laughs> worked with was humans, okay, particularly yeah. children. <laughs> Not a fan of working with <laughs> infants. My favorite, honestly, is going to be the rat. You know, I, I started out with rats, so maybe that's why I'm biased or partial to rats. But um, there's something just fascinating about how that one species is societally hated, but as a researcher, we love rats. Right. We can do so many different things, you know, from vaccines to um, modeling, things like drug addiction. They're just such a versatile animal that just doesn't get credit in society. And I'm glad I'm noticing a lot of people are having rats as pets now. So I think they're kind of making a comeback and they're kind of cool. But um, I, I, think, I think the rat is just such an, an undervalued animal in the field of not only non-human animal research, but also human research. And, you know, there's so many different ways that rat research influences our lives on a daily basis that we just have no idea. So everything I've done with rats has definitely been my favorite. 
Yeah, I think people really underestimate um, actually what comes out of animal research as far as um, applying it to humans goes. Absolutely, definitely. And without rats, there's there we probably know at least one or two people, close friends or family members that would either be suffering or would not be here because of the, the research that we have with rats. So, and other non-human animals as well. Okay. Um, so you've done some teaching as well. Um, mm -hmm. What influenced you to do that? Well, I think I've had a lot of really awesome mentors in the past, uh, whether they were teaching mentors, research mentors, they're kind of the same thing, um, whether it's in a lab setting or a classroom setting. But I knew early on how much I enjoyed and how excited I got listening to someone that knew a whole lot about a topic and something that they were I don't want to say passionate because it's such a cliche word, but something that they they really valued and that was a part of their lives. Um, and just to see them breathe life into it and to, to bring excitement to it was something that I knew that I wanted to do and to, to kind of give back in honor of those mentors that were there and kind of shaped me into who I am as a researcher, as an instructor, just kind of as a person in general. Um, so I think part of it was just, I'm such an excited person about the things that I do. I'm such a, you know, an energetic person and kind of all over the place person. And so to be able to channel that excitement about the world and behavior in general to hopefully engage students and maybe they'll find something, one thing that I say particularly interesting that sets them on a course the same way that it happened to me when I was taking that AP psychology class. So. Right. That's that's probably the most, it's just really valuable and really fulfilling to see how something as small as half of a class period can transform a person and the path that they decide to take. Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, you got a job in academia, right? Mm -hmm. I did, yeah. You want to I'm talk a little bit about that? Sure, I'm actually leaving. I'm moving from Athens, Georgia a month from today exactly. Um, and I'm, I'm super excited. I got a, it's an assistant professor tenure track job out at the University of Puget Sound. So it's really small. Wow. How big is the school that you're at? Um, I would consider us like a really small university actually. Yeah, so that's kind of what this school is like. There's a lot of really close student-faculty interaction and um, there's an expectation for undergraduates to get involved in their major, kind of like what you're doing with this podcast series, which is awesome, by the way. Right. Um, so it was the kind of school that I went to when I was an undergraduate, and it was the type of school that I knew that I wanted to go back to so that I, kept, I could have those, those influential moments with students and those kind of aha moments with students as they develop and learn more about the major. So I'm, I guess I'm going to be leaving at the end of May, and I get to work with rats again, which is really exciting. <laughs> so I, I started out with rats as an undergraduate and went to dolphins and sea lions and monkeys and parrots and hawks. And now I get to go back to my roots and go back to rats. So I'm, I'm pretty stoked to have kind of my very own rat lab. I'm the only animal person in the department. So any undergraduates that want to do research with non-human animals or want to go through the zoo through their through their psychology major, they would come to me and kind of set up some sort of a research experience with me. So right. and, that's a really great opportunity for them as well yeah. as you. So I'm pretty stoked about it. So yeah. it it's just one more month 
and then the big moving truck comes, which is, it's bittersweet, but at the same time, it's what I've been working towards for the last, geez Louise, 10 years of right. undergraduate and graduate school, so. Okay, um, what is the starting salary range for someone in your area of psychology? Hmm, that's a good question. It depends on the kind of school that you're at. Um, do you mean as far as staying in academia? Do you mean maybe working at a zoo? Because with a PhD, if you really wanted to, you could be a zoo keeper. You could potentially be a um, director of a zoo. That's um, cool. um, how about what with what you're doing right now? Sure. So in academia, you can start anywhere between, I'd say, 45 to 65. It's a huge range, but it depends on whether it's a state-funded school, whether it's a private-funded school, um, whether you are just a lecturer, whether you are going on kind of a tenure track to, to being a full professor. It really varies. And it also is going to vary by how much that department needs someone like you. So there's not a lot of universities, I was really fortunate to find one that does value non-human animal research and animal communication and animal cognition. But for those sorts of institutions, if they value it, they'll probably be more likely to fund your research and want you to be there versus another type of institution that maybe doesn't value the non-human aspect but just cares that you are an instructor in general. So it really is going to depend on how you sell yourself. So I could sell myself. I've worked with infants before, um, but I really couldn't sell myself as a developmental psychologist. I've kind of pigeonholed myself as an animal person. So when I went on the job market, I had to only look for jobs that were animal related because that's what I wanted to maintain. That was, that was who I am. So it really is going to depend on not only how you sell yourself, but whether or not the institution values your research and what you do and whether or not you're the only one for that department. So um, you kind of, there's pros and there's cons. It's just a matter of finding, finding an institution that's going to value what you do. Right. Um, so you mentioned um, academia and also uh, zoo research, but what uh, different career options are there? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so the two main ones that I already said, um, which would be staying in academia or going into like, uh, to zoos or wildlife parks, being some sort of a consultant. Um, a lot of individuals, I don't know if you need a PhD for it, probably not, um, but if you have a really strong background in animal training, um, so like big cat training, like for movies, things like that, um, or just any sort of large animal or exotic animal training, uh, but again, you're going to need that strong foundation in psychology because all of training is going to be um, this kind of, um, this kind of, uh, I guess I want to say like kind of like a marriage between operant conditioning and you have to know about that species in particular. So combining psychology and biology together of knowing what sorts of reinforcement that species is really going to respond to from the more natural history of the species and more biology or zoology, but also how then you use those reinforcers in order to shape behavior. So animal training is a big one. Um, curators for zoos is another big one. So not just animal keeper, like the zookeeper or um, director of a zoo, if you have some business background but zoo curator deciding which species get picked. 
um, as well as in the education department or even research departments at zoos. Uh, for a while, I thought I really wanted to be a researcher at the San Diego Zoo. That was kind of my life goal, um, was to be involved in their research program. And a lot of big zoos, like the National Zoo, uh, San Diego Zoo, they're going to have fantastic research programs. So that's another way that you can get involved with, with the animals. Um, I think what else? Usually, once you've attained a PhD, that's kind of when you make the decision of whether you want to go into teaching and research or teaching completely and that's it. But um, yeah, I've known one other person with a PhD that was then a zoo director, but she had to get a master's in business. So yeah, there's there are career options. It's just how much you want to use your, how much school you want to do and then how much your degree matters or staying within what you think you deserve based on the degree that you've attained. Right. Um, if that I, I didn't even know that you could, um, like, I didn't know zoos had animal research programs. So oh, that's, that's yeah, cool. the Atlanta Zoo has an amazing research program. Now that I think about it, they have um, Chantek, one of the language-trained apes who is actually an orangutan. Oh, wow. And so you can go and watch Chantec actually do cognitive testing and doing uh, touchscreen work. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's something that students can get involved with as far as internships go. I know the um, Atlanta Aquarium, or is it Georgia Aquarium? I think it's Georgia Aquarium. Yeah. They have a research program, too, or at least I know that they were talking about starting one because they have something like 11 dolphins now or something like that. Right. So getting involved with dolphin research and just pitching an idea because they're always looking for ways that they can keep the animals enriched or to, to enrich the animals or to keep them occupied and to keep their, their minds going when they're not performing. So even if you just if students have ideas for being able to, um, to, to come up with enrichment items or enrichment apparatuses, things like that, students love that sort of thing. Because uh, they're always looking for it, and they don't always have time to do it themselves. Okay. Um, what tips would you give someone who wants to go into animal behavioral research? Well, the first thing would absolutely be to get as much experience as possible with, uh, I would say, a variety of species. It just makes you more marketable. Because I know for me, I knew I wanted to do non-human animal work. I only had the opportunity to work with rats at my institution when I was an undergrad, but I decided to take an unpaid internship working with dolphins and sea lions um, just because I knew that having rat-only research didn't necessarily make me so competitive, so I went out and did this internship. So doing internships, doing volunteer work, um, beyond working at something like, I mean, working at a, an animal shelter would be really helpful too, but beyond that, looking for some internships that you could do. So getting research experience with a variety of, with a variety of species. Also being flexible. So I came down here expecting to work with monkeys and this parrot project just fell into my lap and I was ready to say, well, great, these are the research questions I have. How could I transform them to work with this new species? Um, I would also suggest really loading up on biology. So I was a biology minor, and a lot of the problems that I've seen for students that do or that want to go into non-human animal research, 
it's just that they only have a psychology degree. And some institutions, they consider animal behavior or animal cognition in the biology department. So even if you don't have the opportunity to be a biology major or minor, double major, thing, things like that, maybe there are classes that you could audit or that you could sit in on. Um, that was the only reason why I was a biology minor is because I wanted to take zoology and animal physiology and animal behavior. And those classes weren't offered in the psychology department. So being flexible with the species you work with, but also being flexible with looking around campus if there are other classes that might supplement your psychology maybe you can end up with double with a double major or minor. Uh, I would also make sure that the students are really strong with their training background. So if psychology of learning is available, make sure you take that so that you can say, not only am I ready to, to do this methodologically, but I'm also ready to work with these animals because I have a concept of how to train them and how not to promote um, undesirable behaviors or uh, reinforce undesirable behaviors. And if it's possible, maybe some non-parametric statistics. I came in knowing a ton about parametric stats, but I didn't know a whole lot about non-parametric stats, so like Chi-Square and Kruskal-Wallis and uh, things like that. And I kind of hit the ground running because a lot of non-human animal research, you don't have 30, 40, 50 subjects. You've got four or mm. one, like in my case. And so you can't run ANOVAs and t-tests. You've got to learn more about those non-parametric statistics. So that would be a huge tip that I would have. And it makes you really valuable in your lab when you come in already knowing about non-parametric statistics, if those are the types of studies that you'll be working on. Yeah, I think um, definitely internships and things like that would definitely be a great idea. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. for undergrads. Absolutely. And there are so many opportunities available. I remember just sitting down one night and just Googling. At the time, I was really into dolphins, and so I just Googled dolphin internship. And anything that came up, I just looked at it just to see, you know, what's it, what is it, where is it, is it paid, is it unpaid, is it feasible given my budget, and really just throwing out emails to, to apply just to see because all these opportunities are there, and from year to year, you might be one of the only people that applies. So you never know, and it, it never hurts to just try because supplementing that CV as you're applying for graduate school is going to be key. It's not just the grades, it's not just the GRE scores, it's going to be your letters of recommendation. So how are you outside of paper? Everybody knows that we can all look great on paper, but what do you like in real life? And what kind of work ethic do you have? That's, that's really going to be important in finding a match for graduate school. Great. Um, I think they definitely prefer you to have um, as much like background in it as possible, too. So they probably yeah, consider that when uh, reviewing your applications and things. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. And it's not, you know, in generations past, maybe it wasn't an option to be able to go across the country. Now there's really no excuse. We have the Internet. We can find that these options are available and these opportunities exist. So now, you know, you've got to take the initiative, and it really shows how motivated and driven you are if you are taking it, taking on an internship when you could be, you know, enjoying your summer somewhere else, you know, but you're choosing to go across the country or you're choosing to take an unpaid internship or even a paid internship um, and to learn more about the field that you say that you want to go into. And it also helps you learn if maybe that's not what you want to go into. And it's better to learn it course of one summer than over the course of over six years in graduate school. 
Right. Um, do you think someone could even get into a grad school without doing any kind of uh, research in their undergrad? Yeah, I think I think it would be possible. I think it really depends on the type of institution. So if an institution, for example, doesn't offer or maybe they don't have any sort of a lab that has um, even rats or anything like that, and if it's impossible to get to a zoo nearby or to do some volunteer work, I think if that's explained in your personal statement or any part of your um, or any part of your application materials that you know this wasn't available to me. However, look at my coursework. So you see that I took all of the animal classes that were available. I went to um, I chose a professor and I did a directed study. So I researched animal communication or I researched. Um, spatial memory in non-human animals and I wrote a literature review on it to see what's going on in the field. That's a great way to still be doing research but you're doing more literature review research as opposed to testing research. So coming up with a fantastic lit review that you can even include samples, you can include parts of it as a, a writing sample to say, hey I didn't have the physical opportunities but that didn't stop me from taking the initiative to come up with some way to supplement my application to show that I really do want to do this and I really do deserve to be in this lab. All right. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, even if you don't have the exact hands-on experience, just um, researching, you know, just on the Internet, you know, you can um, educate yourself a lot. So. Absolutely. And there's always people around. So if you find a particular... Uh, topic that you're really interested in, see if you can find some articles and email those people. You know, you have nothing to lose. The worst thing that can happen is you don't get an email back or you get a no, I don't know how to help you type of an email. But just to shoot out emails and say, you know, hey, can you tell me more about what you're doing or I really find this fascinating. Do you have some more um, citations for your work that you could share with me or anything like that? Because for, for those of us that are doing non-human animal research, we love to hear from, from students, undergraduate, graduate, um, even faculty members. I love to get emails to say, that say, you know, hey, I thought this was really great. Can you tell me more about it? Or where can I read more about it? Or would you like to collaborate on something? Or could I join your lab? Like, those are, those are awesome emails. So it never hurts to just take that, you know, that, that approach of seeing what you find on the internet and then throwing out some emails. It never hurts. Like I said, the worst thing that'll happen is you don't get anything back. Right. And usually people um, who are doing that type of research are really passionate about it. So, you know, they want to talk about their research. They, exactly. they want emails, like you said. Exactly. So as long as you're not emailing things like, hey, you know, could you, I don't know, some, some question that is blatantly right on the person's website. Um, as long as you're not emailing things like that, but you've got like a thoughtful question, that's awesome. Like we, we love that. So please definitely pass that along to, to send out emails and to get in contact with individuals. Because who knows, they might have, you know, a research position open and they might think about you a couple of years down the road. Um, okay, is there anything else you want to add or talk about? Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think if I can remember back to the questions that you asked me, I think we kind of got it all. I'm really flattered that you invited me to do this. It's, this is my first podcast, so I hope I didn't mess it all up for you. <laughs> no, no, I'm really glad that you decided to help us out with it. 
it's a great experience and thank you and I hope that if you have any students that listen or if anyone out there is listening and you would like to get involved or you want some ideas or some tips or some resources you're welcome to send me an email so um, please do um, and your website is erinculbertwhite.com right it's very simple, Aaron Colbert Whitecomb. Okay. Um, and if you listeners have any questions or comments or you want to um, have any ideas for you know, a future podcast, um, just email psychpodcast at northgeorgia.edu.